Well, Christmas should make you feel optimistic. Sometimes you'll find children in the Netherlands are a little wary of what to expect if St. Nick really can see everything. He is the one who could eventually put you in the sack if you hadn't been a nice child that year. Coming up, we'll celebrate Christmas traditions with our friends from near and far, when even simple foods can feel special. Fried dough, there's nothing miraculous about it, and yet somehow in New Mexico it's transformed. And we'll hear how the tradition of wassailing got started in rural England. The village would march down to the orchard, banging drums and making a lot of noise to get rid of the evil spirits. While in Antarctica, the late-night December sun keeps the party going. You can enjoy your bourbon or your scotch or your gin over glacial ice that is tens of thousands of years old. It's this beautiful, clear ice. Get in the spirit with us. It's Travel with Rick Steves. I've always been fascinated by how people observe the holidays in different places around the world and how hearing about them can boost your own Christmas spirit. So today on Travel with Rick Steves... Let's check in with old friends to hear their Christmas time memories. We'll discover what you can find this time of year from Austria to Australia, Santa Fe to the canals of Venice and Amsterdam, with a cup or two of good cheer along the way. Let's start with a look at what the holidays were like in the Netherlands, where Elizabeth Van Hest was born and raised. Christmas is almost here, and we're exploring different cultures' ways of celebrating the holidays. And I have with me Elizabeth van Hest from the Netherlands. Thank you. I'd love to hear what Christmas is like in your memory. Let's pretend you're a five-year-old girl in a small town in the Netherlands, and it's right. Christmas Eve. What, do you, what did you just do? What's happening tonight, and what happens tomorrow? Oh, well, you see, for us, Christmas was really a family feast. Because probably, you know, in the Netherlands originally, we never had gifts at Christmas. It was the real religious holiday and a family holiday. Well, in my case, I remember uh, my mother started to prepare the house to decorate it. And she had little planks and we put moss on it with a wire. And then we put all kind of green leaves like holly and other uh, little objects to decorate the house and we fixed it on the wall and we put it on the table and then of course we made the wreath for the front door and then you were hoping it would uh, be snowing on the right day because I remember the conifer, the big tree in our garden when there was snow on it and my father would put lights that was magic and then just before Christmas uh, my mother came up with the real Christmas tree and you know when I was really very young we had real candles with the clippings real candles real no. candles under the tree inside the house yes and there was a white sheet on the floor to protect the floor and then there was a basket with water in case the a tree would be set on fire. So it was only allowed to light the candles when Daddy and Mummy were there. And we hardly moved, of course, because there could be a fire. But it was magic to see all these flames burning. And then we got a, a beautiful dog, and it was too dangerous. So we had to put electric lights. But it was still very nice. Now, for a little child, is there a Santa Claus figure that brings the gifts? Well, or? that's it, because... Christmas is without presents because our Santa Claus is called Sinterklaas. And he has his birthday on the 6th of December. So that is the real exciting feast for the gifts. Ah. And I really, 
I would be willing to set up an association to save that celebration because I think it's the most beautiful feast in the world. Why? Well, first of all, as a child, you believe in Saint Ignace. He is bishop coming from Spain on a big ship with his assistants who are black Peters. They are funnily dressed and they are doing funny things, acrobats, they are a little bit naughty, and you're scared of him because he is the one who could eventually put you in the sack if you hadn't been a nice child that year. Wow. Because Sinterklaas is keeping a book, and he's writing in the book if you were good or bad. So it is very well organized in the Netherlands because about three weeks before the 6th of December, which is his birthday, he officially arrived on the big ship in Amsterdam. And this is transmitted on television. So you are looking at it because you know once he's in the country, your parents will allow you to put your little shoe at the chimney. Of course, many people had central heating, a little problem, but you find a solution. <laughs> you put your shoe in front of the door or whatever. Anyway, some problems for a child to believe in St. Nicholas because one hour later, after you have seen him arriving on television in Amsterdam, he's arriving in your village as well. And so you say to your mother, how is that possible? So then she usually explains you, well, there is the real one, and he has assistance because, you know, there are so many children like you. The real one cannot cope with all that. So to review, in the Netherlands, Christmas Eve, 24th, 25th, 26th, that's the family time and the religious time. Yes. And St. Nicholas Day, December 6th, is yes. the big gift-giving yes. festival that the children are very excited about. And the Dutch St. Nicholas is Sinterklaas. Yeah, we call him Sinterklaas. Sinterklaas. And that comes from St. Nicholas. Oh, and he sails on a boat from Spain with his yes. uh, acrobatic, uh, colorful uh, Black Peter yes. partners. Yes, And it's a naughty or nice thing. Yes. So if the kids are naughty, what happens? Oh, they put you in the sack and they bring you to Spain. They put you in a sack and take you to Spain. <laughs> and you're so scared. <laughs> so even if you know that you weren't to bed, when your mother or your father brings you to St. Nicholas, because of course, like Santa Claus, you find them in uh, big department stores right. and you can make an appointment. And I remember, because I have still a picture of myself and my brother, I was so brave that I dared to sit on St. Nicholas' knees. Mm. But most of the children start to cry. They get very upset. But you see this magic souvenir uh, of something you believe in. Uh, it's so beautiful. Souvenir I, in the sense of a good memory. Yes. A warm memory. Yes. Elizabeth Van Hest specializes in art tours in Paris and France. She's telling us about the special features of the Christmas season where she grew up in the Netherlands, right now on Travel with Rick Steves. Elizabeth, is there a song that the children uh, sing most happily for this, either Sinterklaas, yes. or what's the happiest children's song that you remember? There are a few very long ones, very beautiful ones. Sing me just see, a quick verse. A one quick you know. one is, Sinterklaas kapuntje, gooi wat in mijn schoentje, gooi wat in mijn laarsje, dank u Sinterklaasje. And you sing that in the evening when your parents allow you to put your shoe and what for just a mean? little what, present. What, what is translation? Sinterklaas, kapuntje, gooi wat in mijn schoentje. Please, Sinterklaas, draw something in my shoe. Sinterklaas, kapuntje, gooi wat in mijn schoentje, gooi wat in mijn laarsje. Dank u, Sinterklaasje. Please throw something in my little boot. Thank you, Sint Nicolaas. 
Well, thank you, Elizabeth, for taking us to the Netherlands in this holiday season. Happy holidays. Merry Christmas. Thank you very much. Merry Christmas. In Dutch, how do you say Merry Christmas? Frohe kerstfeest en een gelukkig nieuwjaar. Dank u wel. Alstublieft. They've got to have the most original Christmas season traditions anywhere in America. In northern New Mexico, many of the ways they celebrate this time of year actually date back to the state's Spanish colonial days and earlier. Plus, the region's mix of cowboys and hippies, Pueblo Indians, and everyone else really spices things up. Travel writer Zora O'Neill joins us now for a look at a Santa Fe Christmas. Oh, thank you. It's great to be here. What is unique about New Mexican Christmas celebrations? Honestly, it feels a little pagan. Uh, there's tons of fire, which is fascinating. Probably the image that people know best is all the luminarias, which are the little paper bags. They're filled with sand to weight them down with a candle inside, and they give off this beautiful golden glow, and people use them to line streets and put along the edges of the roofs on their houses and things like that. So the whole cityscape in Albuquerque, Santa Fe, Taos gets dotted with luminarias. Hmm. Uh, but it's a beautiful, beautiful scene. And then in Santa Fe, on Christmas Eve, in part of the city, they light bonfires all along the street. And people sort of walk from bonfire to bonfire, and all the galleries are open. It's a very sort of special Santa Fe vibe. I remember being up there, and the kind of carols that people were singing were, for instance, you can't always get what you want. Yeah. <laughs> Not well, the most traditional selections. Well, speaking of a special vibe, I think that's unique about New Mexico because you got this hippie culture overlaid with the Indian culture, overlaid with the Spanish colonial culture, and uh, it shows itself in different times of year. Yeah, it's great. And Christmas is when sort of everybody comes out in the street and does their thing together. At the Pueblos, um, pretty much every Pueblo has a dance on Christmas Eve. And this is one of the most amazing times to go visit a Pueblo if you have a chance. It's late at night. I remember when I was a child, I didn't appreciate this at all because it was freezing cold and had to stay up really late. And I was tired and walk a long way. And you're standing there, like, under the stars, blinking in the freezing cold mm -hmm. air, and you hear the drums beating from miles and miles away. So you have that almost pagan-feeling culture with the drums and the fires, but on the cover of your book, you've got uh, Christian crosses with Indian art on them. So there, right. there is that colonial Christian-Mexican sort of style of Christianity also in the Indian communities, is that right? Yes, definitely. I mean, it's very, very syncretic. I remember being at a dance a few years ago, and they did Christmas Mass, and then sort of in the middle of the Mass, while the priest was talking, some of the dancers, sort of the clown figure dancers, worked their way up to the altar and sort of hustled the uh, priest off away from the front of the church, and then the dances began. So there's this almost, there's a very <laughs> conscious blending there. It's it's very smart, and it's fun to be a part of. That's all over the world. It's fun to see how uh, previous indigenous aspects of the culture would be incorporated into people's Christian rituals, and uh, that would happen even at an Indian mass in New Mexico at Christmas time then. Mm -hmm. And the Spanish villages, a lot of the old, old Spanish villages also have their own dances. One of them is the Marachinas. The fiddle music that is played at those dances, I have some recordings of it, and occasionally when I'm feeling homesick, I listen it's some of the most beautiful music you'll hear. There are just so many opportunities, especially around Christmas, to stumble across amazing things in the dark with the fire. Travel and food writer Zora O'Neill was raised in Albuquerque, and she's telling us about the special kind of Christmas traditions you find in the land of enchantment. Zora wrote the Moon New Mexico guidebooks for many years, as well as how to throw a dinner party without having a nervous breakdown. Her 2017 book about her travels in the Arab world, All Strangers Are Kin, 
one best travel book from the Society for American Travel Writing. Zora, you grew up in New Mexico. When you think back to your childhood, what sort of edible memories do you have of Christmas? <laughs> I have one very specific memory. One time we were at the Taos Pueblo at the governor's house, which sounds fancy, but it's not. It's just one of the old mud brick houses in the center of the Pueblo. There was this huge spread, and it was sort of an open house. We could all run in and out, and I was maybe like six. And I remember being totally transfixed with this bowl of little spiced gumdrops because I, as a child of hippies, did not get sugar. So it's funny, like Christmas in New Mexico, spicy gumdrops. But I think (laughs) other people have some broader associations There are tamales. People go crazy making tamales around Christmas because it's a very festive thing. When you make them, you get all your friends together, you make a huge batch of them, and then you have a party and you give some of them away. So tamales are especially delicious around then. And any time of year, if if you want to mix your chili peppers, what what can you say if you want green and red? Uh, You say, I'd like Christmas to your server at the restaurant. It's very handy. So, you know, even if you're missing Christmas, you can still have a little bit of it on your plate all year round in New Mexico. And even if you're a red chili person most of the year at Christmas, you can say, I'd like it. Exactly. Christmassy, red and green. <laughs> Zora O'Neill, Just thanks so much for giving us a, an insight into New Mexico and best wishes with your work. Thank you so much. And Feliz Navidad. Feliz Navidad. Ah. Our next stop takes us to Italy for Christmas in Venice on Travel with Rick Steves. In just a bit, we'll hear how some merry old English holiday traditions are being revived. And we'll check in on the celebrations you'll find for Christmas in the Tyrol of the Austrian Alps, in Italy's Cinque Terre, and in a few unconventional places. First, let's see how they get into the holiday spirit in Venice with tour guide Elena Zamperon. Elena, benvenuti. Thank you to you, Eric. Growing up in Venice, what are some fun memories you have as a child of Christmas? Uh, I'm wrapping gifts with my parents at home, with my grandmothers, and saying, wow, Santa Claus, remember me this year? (laughs) Or just walking down the streets, uh, going to the Christmas Mass together at midnight. Uh, That was a Mass in my family. So now you live uh, in what part of Venice? Canareggio, the northern part from the Grand Canal. Okay, so a little bit away from all the tourist center? Yeah, just a little bit away. Would you go to St. Mark's Basilica Uh, on a big day like that, or you'd go to your neighborhood church? My neighborhood church. Wow. We belong to each church. (laughs) And and, uh, which church would that be? Madonna dell'Orto. Madonna dell'Orto. Yeah. Everybody goes to church on Christmas Eve, I suppose. Oh, usually. I mean, if you're going to go to church once in the year, it would be Christmas Eve. Yeah, it will be on Christmas. (laughs) Okay. Now, what is, how does the canal world of Venice shape the way Venetians celebrate Christmas. Is there anything unusually Venetian about Christmas? Yeah, we have a regatta, a Christmas regatta through the Grand Canal. So that's like a parade for boats? A parade for boats, and everybody has to, if you want to participate, you got to dress up like Santa Claus. So Santa Claus on a gondola? See, si. <laughs> they're from Venetian Are there boats. many boats? Oh yeah, a lot of them, yeah. Christmas regatta, is yeah. that on a, what day? Usually it's on the Sunday before Christmas. Okay. So, so uh, it starts uh, by the basin of San Marco, and then it goes through the whole Grand Canal, and it ends up in Rialto. And everybody dresses up as? Santa Claus. Santa Claus. Of course, many Santa Claus. <laughs> There's a lot of Santa Clauses. <laughs> and what kind of boats are there? Different Venetian boats, Sandalo, Caurlina, rowed by six, rowed by two, rowed by one. Uh, so, so you know these different boats? Oh, uh, yeah. So tell me again, Sandalo? Sandalo is just row by one or by two. Caurlina by six mostly, and that's a very thick and big one. Uh-huh. Yeah. 
You can roll singing Christmas songs, and then in Rialto, it's time for just drinking wine or hot chocolate. And Rial- so Rialto or, is the area because there's lots yeah. of restaurants and bars and so yes. on. Yes, and yeah. right under the fish market, right under the wide open arches, just because on Sunday there's no market, uh, we can eat and we, we can chit-chat. And a lot of kids come to see many Santa Claus. <laughs> Do you feel on these festivals around Christmas time in Venice that it's the world is of the local Venetian people or do you feel invaded by the tourists? No, no tourists at all. I think that tourists don't come for Christmas. Maybe they used to choose some other spots in Italy, but not Venice. Maybe because it's all the way up to the north, too cold to... Because it can be cold. It can be cold. I've stood on the top of of St. Mark's and I've I've seen the Alps. You can see them. They cut into the sky. When it's not humid and yeah. the air is clear, it's very few times a year. But you <laughs> see the so mountain, because it, it must be a few times a year, because I've been on top of the bell tower many times, yeah. and you don't notice the Alps. No. But in the winter, the air can be crispy. It's fantastic. Sometimes it's, it's lovely. Oh, I love but it. some other times in Christmas, we have high tide. Yeah. It happens. Yeah. Oh, okay, so all those Santa Clauses are pulling on their boots. <laughs> Sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you, we got we to gotta wear rubber boots. Uh, Do you have rubber walk. boots in your house? Of course. Two of course. Pairs. Of course, two pairs. How high are they? Uh, till knees and then over knees. You've got one that goes higher than your knees. Yeah, of course. Rubber boots. <laughs> See, if I got to go to the Samra Square, I need the, the big boots. And how many times a year do you use those boots? Thousands. <laughs> a lot. <laughs> a lot. <laughs> More so, than hundreds. So there's a, a lot of flooding in Venice these yes. days. Yes. What are they doing about that? Um, praying. Praying. <laughs> Using rosaries. <laughs> Good luck. <laughs> no, I mean, you got to slow down. You yeah. slow down and everybody right. slow down. Uh, you, you enjoyed it. So it's a sort of a blessing because now we have to, we can't do what we planned and now yeah. we can have more time together or something. Yeah. Maybe it's like when we have snow here. It's, it makes everybody slow down. Yeah. So when you have a flood. Yeah. The only thing is if you got to catch a train, uh, you are in trouble. <laughs> then you got to get on your boots early. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> now, all over Italy, they're famous for the uh, Presepi these beautiful manger scenes. I think St. Francis sort of invented the idea of the manger scene to illustrate the Christmas story in Assisi. And then uh, I know all over Italy, you go into the churches and it's like a local competition to have the most beautiful manger scene or presepi. Do you have that tradition in Venice? Very small and little presepes in some churches, but mm-hmm. not in... in not like in, in Rome. No, not like in Rome. We don't have a proper... And then in, in Rome, I know that the Christmas season goes all the way until Epiphany, January 6th when they have a La Bafana, yeah. like the, yeah. the, the holiday witch. A beautiful woman. <laughs> Do you have the, the La Bafana in Venice? We have it too, yeah. So explain, to what, what is the whole meaning? Because it's confusing to me. Who is this La Bafana and why on Epiphany and what happens? Uh, usually she brings candies and uh, calls to people. Uh, cool. So yeah, candy also, if the kids are good and yeah, cold if they're back. But exactly. it happens on the 12th day of Christmas. Epiphany. Oh, yeah, yeah. So that's when the kids are going to get their, what, do they have a stocking and it's filled with little goodies? Yeah, it, it happens the day before they're back to school. <laughs> so okay. that's why they got to be good. <laughs> they got to be, oh, it's planned that way. Of course. Way. Very smart <laughs> mother and father sub, in yeah. Italy. <laughs> yeah, and that's the end of Christmas, even in Venice. But the beginning in Venice, I think, is up to two different parties. So there are some families who used to decorate their Christmas tree after La Madonna della Salute celebration. Oh, La Madonna della Salute, that's the big church that was built to celebrate surviving the plague, Exactly, in the middle of the 1600s. The big famous Baroque church across, we always see it from St. Mark's, and I understand you build a, a special bridge across yeah. the Grand Canal. By wooden raft. Right? Still happens. Temporary. Yeah, it still happens. There's a sort of 
parade of people yeah. uh, holding their candles to light up the candles into the church for asking for a good health for their whole family. Oh, that's wonderful. Yeah, and that always happens on November the 21st. And that kicks off the Christmas season. For some families. For some, families. some mothers, like mine, <laughs> on December the 8th uh, for the Immaculate Conception. Okay. I've always, I've always done it. So your on. mother has a shorter Christmas season. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> So we, yeah, because for us, you don't decorate for Christmas until after Thanksgiving. Oh, uh, yeah, of course. See. So this would be about the same time. Yeah. So if you think back, Elena, to your childhood, tell me your most beautiful little Christmas memory as a child celebrating Christmas in Venice. So in my family, <laughs> so we used to wait for Santa Claus at, on the Christmas Eve. Uh-huh. So at a certain time after dinner, my father, the boss of the family, had to say, okay, now let's go to the other side of the house. Let's turn the light off waiting for Santa Claus. But one year it happened and my grandmother was just leaping with us because she was ill. So we left grandma in that room, in the living room, and we left that room. So a couple of minutes later, my, my father said, okay, now I gotta, I gotta go back and I gotta catch if Santa Claus went or not. And then at a certain time, we heard boom, a very hard boom. So we back and my grandma was down on the floor. So apparently she fell down by herself, but I thought I was, I think I was four. I thought it was Santa Claus who <laughs> punched my grandma. <laughs> or, oh no. Yeah, okay. oh, my no. grandma said, oh, Santa Claus is not that good <laughs> for me this year. So is your grandmother okay? Yeah, of course. <laughs> and did Santa Claus come? See, si. <laughs> And everything was happily ever after? Yes. So that's good. <laughs> By the way, were you, uh, when uh, La Bafana comes on January 6th, did you get uh, goodies or did you get coal? No, always candies and goodies. Always candies? Yeah, I was a good a good girl. You were girl. a good little girl. <laughs> of course. <laughs> and what kind of candies and goodies would, would love a Like sweets and, and like chocolate bars. Happy times. Yeah, happy times. Happy only. times. One time I had just cola, but it was a sugar cola. Oh, yeah. that was good. So yeah. it was a, just for a nice girl. <laughs> <laughs> cola for a nice girl. <laughs> yeah. Elena Zemperan, uh, how do you say Merry Christmas in Venetian? Bon Natal. Bon Natal. Mille grazie. Grazie a Eric. Lorraine Deneen joins us now for a look at some of the holiday preparations you can find throughout England that get you ready for Christmas. She's a licensed tour guide based in Bath. Lorraine, happy holidays and thanks for joining us. It's a pleasure. So if you think back on your childhood memories of Christmas, in, in England, there's something called a, a stirrup Sunday. Oh, what is that? Yeah, it's the last Sunday before Advent, mm-hmm. which is most likely to be the last Sunday in November. Mm-hmm. And it's when the Christmas puddings are made. Christmas puddings are a mixture of dried fruits and breadcrumbs yeah. and eggs. You mix it all together and you put it in a basin and then you steam it hours and hours and you eat it after you've eaten your turkey on Christmas Day. Okay. You actually set fire to it, which is a bit silly. But on Stir Up Sunday you get the family and you get the kids round just to give it a stir and traditionally you put a little piece of silver in there so like a sixpence or something would have gone in there. Uh-huh. And then whoever gets the sixpence on Christmas Day in their pudding dish is the lucky one. So there's a coin in the pudding. I know, I know. Did so, you ever get that as a child? Yes. It must have made you just filled with joy. Well, yeah, because sixpence was worth a lot when I was a kid. We don't have sixpences anymore. What could you buy with a sixpence? 
sweets. Back then, they sold candy uh, like little separate candies, right? So you just buy yes. them. You'd, yeah. you'd weigh them out. Yeah, yeah, you'd weigh them out. Six penny worth of sweeties. So that's a Christmas tradition. And on Christmas Day, yeah. when you've steamed the pudding for hours and hours and hours yeah. and you get it out the dish and it sits there, you pour whiskey over it or brandy over it and you set fire to it. I don't know why you do that. And you eat it with cream or custard or whatever, yeah. brandy sauce. Is that still popular? We still set fire to our puddings, yeah. <laughs> what about wassailing? Is that the... Wassailing, yeah. Wassailing. That's another tradition that's had a bit of a revival recently. It's traditionally found in areas where they grow cider apples, mm-hmm. Gloucestershire, Herefordshire, oh, Somerset. Yeah. Cider, very hard cider. Yes. Scrumpy. Scrumpy, yes. Well, it was tradition to get the village together to go and bless the orchard and the village would march down to the orchard banging drums and making a lot of noise to get rid of the evil spirits and they'd pour a little cider around all the trees Into the roots, right down the bottom yes, of the tree Yes, just to make sure that the trees produced enough apples to make good cider again the following year and they'd sing a lot of songs as well and it's a tradition that has been revived quite recently and you can imagine any excuse to get down the orchard and drink a lot and make a lot of noise. There's a guy named Roy who has a cider farm, an orchard up in near Cheddar Gorge. Yes. Roy Wilkins. Yes. Land's End Farm, I think. Uh-huh. And when you go there, it's like, it feels like a club that's been partying for six months. Yeah. They're just there, they're draped over all the trees, they're hanging out in the driveway, and there's got these big kegs of cider, and it is a wild scene. Yeah, I bet they do wassailing down there as well. That would be fun, yeah. wassailing. So singing, drinking cider, a tradition going way, way back. It's a pagan ritual, basically. Before Christianity yeah, came yeah, to England. Yeah, yeah, it's a pagan ritual. And still carried on. Yeah. Wherever there's fruit trees. Yes, indeed, yeah. What would people sing during wassailing? Um, so it's your wassail and it's my wassail and a toast to everybody. It's a jolly wassail. So it's a wassail. That's, wassail. A, that's what you do. You're going to wassail together. You wassail down to the orchard and you make I, a lot of noise. It sounds almost like a, a movie scene with a bunch of people traipsing from the village square out to the orchard, singing together. It's a bit weird, really, isn't it, when you think about it like that? Probably holding torches. <laughs> well, yes. Yeah, they would be, wouldn't they? In the dead of winter. Yeah, exactly. Dead of winter. So it gives everybody an excuse to get together and have a party. Otherwise, it's pretty dreary. Very dreary. And back then, you didn't even know for sure if spring was going to come. You thought, maybe this is the end of stuff. Well, it was their way of ensuring that the trees were going to produce apples again that year. They got every base covered. That's true. And they sold a little cider. <laughs> oh, I tell you what is interesting. Yeah. Some of our Christmas carols uh-huh. have come from wassailing songs. So things like, uh, now bring us some figgy pudding, now bring us some figgy pudding, now bring us some figgy pudding and bring it right here. What's that got to do with Christianity? It hasn't. It's got a lot to do with wassailing, though. Which is a pagan tradition that was incorporated into the Christian traditions over the centuries. Yes. So bring us some figgy pudding. And we were just talking about figgy pudding. Yeah, absolutely. And if you're lucky, you'll find a little silver coin in that, and then everything's going to be good this next year. Yes. All right. Lorraine Deneen, thanks so much for taking us back to the old country as we better understand Christmas in England. It's fun, isn't it? It sure is. Lorraine, thanks so much. Thank you, Rick. Merry Christmas. For it's your wassail, and it's our wassail, and it's joy be to you, and a jolly wassail. 
Because Tony Wheeler's dad worked in the airline industry, he grew up in a number of countries besides his native England. When he moved to Australia back in the 1970s, Tony's notes for backpackers eventually became the Lonely Planet Publishing Company. Tony first joined us a few years back on Travel with Rick Steves to tell us about the Christmas season in the Southern Hemisphere. Tony, thanks for joining us. Thank you. Think back on some Christmases you've had overseas. Uh, what sort of uh, cultural highlights and surprises have well, you enjoyed? Uh, funnily enough, um, I, I keep thinking of seafood when I, I think of Christmas. You know, certainly in, the, in England, Turkey, which I was born in England, Turkey is the Christmas meal, much like it's Turkey for Thanksgiving in the States. But um, in Australia, we, we, for many years, we've had a seafood barbecue in the back garden and had a lot of friends around, and it's, it's outside on the Christmas Eve, and we're, we're oh, eating... Oh, it's the shrimps on the barbie thing. Shrimps on the barbie and lobster and oysters and... Um, but Christmas is hot in Australia, right? It's hot, so you're outside. Elementary, you know, so, there you go. Yeah, so Santa it's, Claus it's, has short pants. Sure, Santa Claus certainly does have short pants, and... Late night on Christmas Eve is what I really think of being the, and my kids would as well. That's what they'd really associate Christmas with. They'd associate with Christmas Eve outside and seafood. But also one of the best Christmases I ever had traveling was in Burma. This was a long time ago when there were very few tourists in Burma. And the Raffles Hotel, which is the big fancy hotel, but very, very run down in those days. And we, we went to have dinner there the Christmas Day and we thought, how can we sort of try and do a Christmas dinner? And the only thing we could think of was, was lobster. It was sort of the nearest thing you could think of to a, a fancy Christmas meal. It was fun. Let's talk a practical travel tip here. You've got guidebooks that are covering the entire world. People often ask me, what should I do at Christmas? You know, I'm in this or that place, and I usually don't know because I've never been there on Christmas. Just in general, if somebody's exploring the world, what's, what's a good practical tip to enjoy Christmas away from home? I, I guess, you know, if you want to make something of it, this should be the day of the week that you have a fancy meal, that you do something that feels a little bit out of the way, a little bit Christmas-like. But it's remarkable how you can find little reminders of Christmas in the strangest places. I remember once I was in Kathmandu at Christmas, and we went into a shop, and we were looking around, and they had little little figures of the um, of the various Hindu gods. You could have a Vishnu or a Shiva or a, a Ganesh or whatever. And we looked at them, and we thought... They look like something you'd hang on a Christmas tree. And we sort of said this, and an assistant in the shop said, yes, you could hang them on a Christmas tree. So obviously somebody else had already suggested this, and this had become an idea. And for many years, our Christmas tree back at home did every year have a little figure of Ganesh and a little figure of Shiva and Vishnu hanging on the tree. And when you bring that up, it reminds me, you know, Christendom is Christendom, and that's just a minority of the planet. But Christmas um, is something different. I mean, Christmas we, is different, yeah. You yeah, have Christmas it's, celebrated in Japan, and it's yeah, more like a party. It is, yeah. And, you know, I don't think there's anything wrong with that. No. I, mean, I think it's, it's taking a different perspective. It's on, a multicultural approach to Christmas. Yeah, yeah. In Japan, it's the big party. I know at uh, New Year's is more of the religious time, and in yeah. Japan, everybody's got their Christmas cakes. Yes, and indeed. You, you're, on, you're packed onto the subway. And like then, you know, a month later in the Chinese part of the world, suddenly it's Chinese New Year is the... The celebration. I, I think we should, you know, enjoy every celebration we, we can take part in. They're all fun. And when you travel in the developing world, or what we'd call the third world, a lot of times I think there is more festive kind of color. In Bali, don't they say there's a festival every day? Just about, yeah. And the, and the year is shorter. The year is only 210 days. So the, the annual celebrations come around more regularly. So wherever you're traveling, you can be tuned in to the local festivities and embrace them with gusto. Yeah, and, you know, it can be all sorts of local things. It can be the local sport. I think, you know, if you go to some, any country, find out what the local sport is and see if you can catch an archery contest in uh, Bhutan, where archery is a national sport, or canoeing in, the, in Polynesia, where I've seen outrigger canoes go so fast you could water ski behind them. 
that is a fundamental trick, is to get out of the museums and beyond the palaces and beyond the, the tour buses and actually become a temporary local person, whether it's going to a sporting event or getting into a home to celebrate a local holiday, if, if it happens to be Christmas or, or whatever. Getting yourself intimate with the culture. Yeah. Tony Wheeler, thanks a lot. Merry Christmas. Thank you. Tony Wheeler and his wife Maureen live in Melbourne, where they founded the Wheeler Centre to support writers, readers, and thinkers in Australia. Just ahead, we'll get another Southern Hemisphere report on the holidays. And we're calling on more friends in Europe to hear about their Christmas memories and traditions on Travel with Rick Steves. Today's edition of Travel with Rick Steves is designed to get you into the holiday spirit, whatever you like to celebrate. We're checking back on conversations we've recorded over the years with friends about their Christmas time traditions, the kind that bring warm memories to sustain us. On the line right now is Gabby Koch. She and her sister-in-law run the Maximilian Hotel on the edge of Reuter in the snowy Tyrolean Alps of Austria. Gabby, thanks for joining us. Thank you, Rick. Hello. We have a lot of uh, romantic images of the Tyrol, or the I guess you say Tyrol in German. Tyrol. Can you just describe to people what a small-town Christmas would be like in your part of Europe? Christmas is a very traditional fest here. As you know, we are uh, Roman Catholic, so it starts already with the Advent Zeit, so we get prepared for the birth of Jesus. A lot of handcrafts are done then, Christmas decoration. We do a lot of music with traditional instruments. How are the houses decorated in your town? Uh, mainly with nature things like trees, nuts, apples, so not very uh, artificial things. Now, in the United States, we decorate our tree several weeks, uh, usually before Christmas. When do you get your tree and when do you decorate it and how does that um, involve the children? Usually we have natural trees and sometimes we pick them very, very short time ahead. So even on the Christmas uh, day, we go to the forest and pick them. So the papas, they need to keep the smaller children busy, like they go out, they do skiing or skating or snowman or playing games, whatever. And then the mama prepares the tree and the presents and the living room is closed and they will come at about 5 to 6 o'clock p.m. The Christmas bell rings and everybody may enter then the living room. Of course, this is done with the smaller kids. When they are a little bit older, they join uh, decorating the Christmas tree. Who actually, in the children's mind, who brings the presents? Christkind. Christkind is the birth of God. It's Jesus. And so we never have had any Weihnachtsmann, Santa Claus. This is not uh, something from our religion. Weihnachtsmann is uh, actually a newer expression. I think... Um, our equivalent would be Santa Claus? Yes. Okay. But I think it's mainly used for business reasons. So even the little children, they think that Jesus is bringing the presents to them and putting them under the tree. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Describe for me, Gabby, in the Tyrol, in Western Austria, uh, how you deal with the big family meal and when you go to Mass and how the Mass and the family all comes together. Usually the meal on the 24th is quite simple because there are a lot of preparations to make it really up to the, to the event, to the birth of Jesus. The meal is quite uh, simple, like a sausage and a potato salad or a fish, but not very fancy. And the service where we go to is at midnight. We call it the Christmette. And it will start at uh, 11.30 with already Christmas songs in the church. And then the main service, which is very familiar, but uh, as well festive, starting at midnight. 
Afterwards, everybody was uh, for Weihnachten in front of the church, which is a very nice custom, especially when it's snowing. So it's like in a fairy tale. So after the Mass, everybody is uh, socializing in front of the church, wishing yes. each other Merry Christmas, Freie Weihnachten. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then we go to the illuminated cemetery. What kind of lights and why? Oh, this is to give the wishes and the uh, Merry Frohe Weihnachten to the dead people as well. So there's candles in your graveyards? Candles, yes, a lot of candles. Huh. After the Christmas bell rang, you go to the uh, living room, then uh, you have some Christmas songs, then you have the Evangelium, this is the history of the birth of uh, Jesus. Mm-hmm. So you read the Gospel. You read the Evangelium. Afterwards, you have, uh, again, some uh, Christmas songs. Then you give the Christmas wishings. And then, a very exciting point, you can open the presents. Wow. And do you have, then, a big Christmas feast uh, on Christmas Day? On the 25th. Sometimes you start with a very long breakfast because you come back quite late from the church. Then you go to the sons and daughters, or they come to the house. And then, uh, probably have an early evening meal or a late evening meal. But the whole day will be uh, time to spend and to see the family and shine each other. Gabby, can you uh, share with us in the United States what your wishes are for the new year? I wish first peace for everybody. Frohe Weihnachten. And then, of course, everybody wants to be healthy, join family, and be happy, and, of course, have all the blessings of God. That's beautiful. And once again, in uh, in your language, how do you say Merry Christmas? Frohe Weihnachten. Frohe Weihnachten. Thank you very much, Gabby, and Merry Thank Christmas. You. Frohe Weihnachten from Austria. Rick, to you and to everybody. Bye now. Bye-bye. Journalist Fen Montaigne got to spend the holidays at the Palmer Station Research Facility in Antarctica while he was researching his book, Fraser's Penguins, a few years back. It's located just a little north of the Antarctic Circle. Fen, what's it like in a scientific station in Antarctica for Christmas? What do you do down there on Christmas? Well, uh, they celebrate Christmas uh, just like we do up here in the U.S. The nice thing about being in Antarctica is you always have a white Christmas, Another nice thing that I loved is that it was light about 22 hours a day, which uh, meant the celebration could go on and on. But the station has 40 people. It's uh, supplied by boat alone. We had turkeys. We had stuffing. We had wine. And I and a group of about 10 or 12 other people at the station practiced for weeks to sing uh, Christmas carols. So we had some caroling. And um, Hmm. as at most Antarctic stations after the feast, uh, there was partying and uh, imbibing uh, well into uh, the day after Christmas. What would you guess is the population of Antarctica at Christmas time? It's probably, given that's the peak of the whole research season, oh boy, maybe 10,000 perhaps across a whole continent that's one and a half times the size of the U.S., including Alaska. The biggest station is the U.S.'s station in McMurdo Sound. Uh, the Brits have some big stations. So do the New Zealanders, the Russians, the Australians. So it's a um, population of, of some thousands of uh, researchers and support staff spread over an enormous territory. And that's peak season when you've got daylight almost all the time. I suppose the dead of winter would be 
what, July and August, where the population... July and August, and then you're really talking about hundreds. Many of the stations are abandoned in winter, and you've primarily got the stations at the South Pole, the Scott Amundsen station that that the U.S. uh, Mm -hmm. occupies. So uh, it's literally down into the hundreds in the Antarctic winter. And uh, when New Year's rolls around, how do you know what time is uh, actually midnight? Well, the station goes by U.S. time, and at least I think it does. I've got to remember, it's it's close to U.S. East Coast time. They also are very close to the time of uh, the southern tip of South America in Tierra del Fuego with Chile and Argentina, which is within an hour or two of U.S. East Coast time. So it's very clear when the, the New Year is rung in. And again, um, one of the real treats, I forgot to add, of the uh, Antarctic uh, Christmas and New Year's is that you can enjoy your bourbon or your scotch or your gin over glacial ice that is tens of thousands of years old. It's this beautiful, clear ice that we go out, we pick it up in boats, <laughs> uh, bring it back to the station and uh, chop it up. And I, I don't think I've ever had a more tasty sip of bourbon than the one I had over uh, Antarctic glacial ice. One of the hidden joys of the holiday seasons in Antarctica. Fen Montaigne, author of Fraser's Penguins, Thanks for checking in with us this holiday season. It was my pleasure, and uh, happy holidays to you. Travel writer Don George has been an editor at Lonely Planet and National Geographic Traveler for many years. His ebook, The Way of Wanderlust, compiles many of his travel essays and stories. Don lives in the San Francisco Bay Area, but since his wife is from Japan, he's gotten to know many of that country's distinctive holiday celebrations. The other holiday that comes to mind is Oshogatsu, New Year's in Japan, where the whole country just goes crazy on New Year's Eve and everyone goes to the temple and prays and there's people selling things and you get your fortune and you tie it on a tree and the whole country seems to come together and for the next three days, everyone is celebrating. It's a fantastic time to be in Japan. You know, I spent a Christmas and a New Year's in Japan once and it was uh, sort of funny to me because Christmas was the party day and New Year's Eve seemed to be the religious holiday. And I was all alone, and I stepped out of my hotel at midnight on New Year's Eve, just kind of, I was lonely, you know, and I didn't know anybody. I was somewhere in some desolate little town in Shikoku, and another man opened the door, and he did this little religious, where he clasped his hands and he did a little bow, and I I suppose he said, Happy New Year, in (laughs) Japanese, and then on on TV, uh, we have the ball dropping from Times Square, and they had a big gong going on, is that right? What was 108 times they hit the bell. That signifies the passing of the old year's problems and the blessings of the new year. And it's a great celebration around the whole country. It's fun to be in uh, Tokyo on Christmas because everybody's just going cake crazy. There's a tradition (laughs) of cakes, right? That's right. The Christmas cake. That's what they do on Christmas. They celebrate by having a cake. And what Tokyo is like 12 million people and it seems like they're all in the subway at the same time. (laughs) And I don't feel that tall. I'm 6'2", but boy, I felt tall in Japan. And I'll never forget standing in the subway and there's a a carpet of of, of black hair all around me. And then every four or five meters, somebody's holding up a cake so they don't get crushed in that sea of humanity. And I just thought, wow, this world's a fascinating place, especially on a holiday. That's a lot of cake. That's a lot of cake. (laughs) Let's return now to Italy for more of its festive holiday traditions. This time, we're checking in on the small towns of the Cinque Terre on its rocky northwest coast. Matteo Passini and his brother run a pair of boutique hotels in Monterozzo. We asked Matteo a few years ago to tell us how the Christmas holiday traditions have been changing over the years in his corner of Italy. 
Mateo, Merry Christmas. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. Merry Christmas to you all also. Yeah, Matteo, now tell me in Italy, what is special about Christmas in Italy compared to other places in Europe or the United States? In Italy, for example, under a gastronomical point of view, you have uh, panettone, uh, which is uh, special of Italy, and uh, spumante, which is our Italian champagne. You're going right to the food and the drink, spumante yes. and panettone. Tell us about panettone. those. A panettone, it's a Christmas cake, and it's full with uh, fruits, and uh, and then we have uh, also pandoro, which is something similar, but uh, with more butter, with, it's uh, more simple, but uh, both are very good, and uh, in every home uh, you have uh, panettone or pandoro for Christmas. What is a, a warm childhood memory that you have of Christmas in Italy? During Christmas, uh, here in Cinque Terre, we were expecting the Christmas lunch, something uh, very, very important, where uh, you could eat uh, something that you never uh, eat uh, during the other days of the year. For example, uh, ravioli were the main uh, dish we had uh, for Christmas and that were very important because some family could only have ravioli for uh, Christmas lunch and never before. So poor families would only have ravioli on a special day? Yes, only on Christmas and then uh, no more for the rest of the year. So it was very important. Or, wow. for example, people were wearing a particular dress during that day and then uh, because uh, friends gave them like a, a good uh, shirt or uh, something like this and then uh, no more for the rest of the year. So it was something very particular. And uh, for example, when I was a uh, kid, we always uh, were waiting uh, Christmas Eve that uh, midnight was coming when uh, Jesus' baby were bringing us uh, some uh, gifts. So we were all waiting the Mass, and then after the Mass, uh, we came back uh, home very fast uh, to see if uh, gifts uh, were there, and they were there. <laughs> so we were all happy. But now, unfortunately, it's different. Now, uh, maybe this is the power of uh, globalization. We have uh, something more like uh, you have in the United States and all over Europe. Uh, we have uh, also Babbo Natale, which is your uh, Santa Claus. And nobody is speaking anymore, almost uh, anymore, about baby Jesus. So every kid is waiting for Babbo Natale, and then uh, Babbo Natale is no more related to the Mass, so many people is not going to the Mass anymore. Or also, even if the Christmas Eve Mass is very, very important in Italy, people maybe they go to the Mass that night, uh, maybe once in a year, but they go because uh, it's uh, really very important, something uh, everybody feels a lot. Now, Babbo Natale, is that like uh, Papa Christmas? Is that what that means, literally? Yes, uh, the, the real translation is uh, Christmas Daddy. daddy. Christmas, Christmas Daddy. So Christmas that, Daddy, yes. Does Babbo come down the chimney like Santa Claus does in my town? Yes and no. Sometimes, mostly, he comes uh, to the door, he knocks, and then uh, gives you something. Also, for children, somebody will wear, uh, like, uh, Babbo Natale and uh, go knocking to all doors and give presents. Now, you have another character, um, La Befana, right? Yes. For uh, the 6th of January, when the three kings, we have uh, La Befana. Every child wait uh, La Befana because if uh, you have been good, uh, she will bring you candies and a lot of uh, sweet stuff. If you have been bad, 
she will bring you cork. The Befana comes down from the, like your Santa Claus, down from the roof inside the, the, where you have the fire in the... Okay, the chimney. So La Befana, so this is the Christmas witch, kind of. And, the, uh, the Christmas witch, yes. yeah. Let, just to explain to people, so Epiphany is January 6th, and we know about the 12 days of Christmas, and that's really the finale of the 12 days of Christmas when the three wise men actually gave the famous gifts to baby Jesus, and that is celebrated throughout Italy then, so, and that's when the Christmas witch comes in. What do they give the children if they've been naughty? Coal, you mean? Coke, like black, Coke. the Coke. black stones, right? Black stones, yes. Now in Italy, the manger scenes are a big deal. The, you say presepe, right, in Italian? Si, presepe is very important. See, in fact, now two the best presepe are always made by Saint Francis monks. Franciscans, uh, by yeah. Saint Francis monks, they are all the best uh, presepe. Yes, mm-hmm. very, very nice, very yeah. beautiful. Because that's a big deal in Rome. I mean, every church has a, a, a major si, scene, and si, people si, go. Si. But like also a... in private home, we normally it's more important to have a presepe than uh, the Christmas tree in Italy. When you have children uh, and you have uh, the grandparents of the mother or the parents of the mother and the parents of the father, uh, different families, how do you know where to go when? How do you sort that out? Uh, this is a big problem. <laughs> I think it's the same problem in the United States and all over the world, but in Italy could cause uh, big tragedies. <laughs> I mean, normally when we speak in the afternoon with all the other friends, on 10 people, five uh, had a bad day because <laughs> they fight all day. <laughs> the family competition at Christmas. What is the uh, biggest yeah. event the dinner on Christmas Day or Christmas Eve? No, uh, normally in Italy the biggest uh, competition is for uh, Christmas lunch. Christmas the lunch. The lunch on Christmas Day, on the 25th of December for lunch. Hey, Matteo, yeah. wh- what are you thankful for this Christmas and what are your wishes for the new year in Italy? The wishes are uh, only one, not only for Italy. Uh, peace for everybody. <laughs> Thank you, Matteo. And, and just so we can hear your beautiful language, can you wish all of your friends in the United States a Merry Christmas and a peaceful New Year? Can I hear you say that in Italian? Yes. Allora, volevo augurare a tutti voi un felice Natale e un bellissimo anno nuovo pieno di pace. Tanti auguri a tutti. Buon Natale. Buon Natale. Matteo, thank you very much and buon Natale to you too. Thank you, Rick. Buon Natale to you and to all your family. Ciao. I met a man who lives in Tennessee and he was heading for Pennsylvania and some homemade pumpkin pie. From Pennsylvania, folks are traveling down to Dixie, sunny shore. From Atlantic to Pacific, gee, the traffic is terrific. Oh, there's no place like home for the holidays. Cause no matter how far away you roam, if you want to be happy in a million ways, for the holidays, you can't beat home, sweet home. Travel with Rick Steves is produced at Rick Steves Europe in Edmonds, Washington, by Tim Tatton, Casmer Hall, and Donna Bardsley. Our website is managed by Andrew Wakeling. Our theme music is by Jerry Frank, and radio affiliate relations are by Sheila Gerzoff. We'll see you next week for more Travel with Rick Steves. Hey, I'm Rick Steves. I love art. And in my new book, Europe's Top 100 Masterpieces, I share my favorites with gorgeous photos and vivid descriptions. 
It's a greatest hit sweep through art history via the finest paintings, sculpture, and architecture ever. It's all in Europe's top 100 masterpieces. Art for the traveler. It's available now at ricksteves.com.